this very day, for that matter, that uh, I think are very important for us to consider. So here, in chapter 7, he had written about uh, marriage and whether it was good to touch a woman or not, and so on, and he went on to explain that because God calls sometimes only one uh, party of a marriage into the church and does not call the other, uh, then if they have trouble, the one, the member, has trouble uh, worshiping God in peace and giving their attention to him, that uh, the unwilling or uh, the mate that is not allowing that peace to go on can depart and that the member is not bound in that case. God makes an exception to death do us part because it's on him only he can call. And if he only calls one and the other will not let them serve God in peace, then they are not bound to that uh, mate uh, afterward. Then he goes on down, which we'll get to, and shows that we are only to marry in the Lord or within the church. Now, if he calls one of us and not the other, that's on him. If we marry outside the church, then that's on us. And whatever trouble we have with it, uh, we brought upon ourselves. And that's been done many, many times as well. But let's not rehash that too much and get on down where we stopped last time. Uh, I read verse 17, which I'll go back to. He says, But as God has distributed to every man, as the Eternal has called everyone, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all the churches. So, what does that mean? He says, every man should remain as he is called, and that he was making that an administrative decision or policy through all the churches, and he had that authority to do. So, from there, he goes on down and explains what he means by all this. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become, uncir uh, not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. So, uh, considering that particular item, stay as you are. Uh, some have said that to be a true member of God's church, you have to be circumcised. Well, Paul shows that that is not true in other scriptures, and here he says, don't worry about it. You stay the way you are. And he was talking to a lot of Gentiles in the churches there, and most of them were uncircumcised. So he says, uh, stay that way. Then in verse 19 he says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. So that physical manifestation that God required in the Old Testament, he says, does not matter in the New Testament. In another place, he says that we have to be circumcised of the heart, uh, the carnality, the humanness, the works of the flesh of the heart have to be cut out. That's the part that is undesirable to God. It has nothing to do with the flesh in the nether regions. So he said, stay as you are. Are you called being a servant? He, he mentioned several categories of people here. If you're, they were, and there were slaves then. 
and there were slaves in the church. He addresses that at various other places in the New Testament as well. If you're a slave, don't worry about it. But if you may be made free, use it rather. So he says, don't sit and chafe and worry that you're a slave. On the other hand, if the opportunity comes to not be a slave to probably uh, an unconverted master, then get away from that. Because an unconverted master, like an unconverted mate, can be a hindrance to our wholehearted service to God. So he says that's one thing you could change if it came up. But don't worry about it otherwise. Just stay as you are. For he that is called in the eternal, being a servant or a slave, is the Lord's free man. We're called to freedom in Christ, uh, away from slavery to this world and Satan's system. So we're free from that in Christ. Likewise also, he that is called, being free, that is physically not a slave, is Christ's servant. <clears throat> so you're free to serve Christ, even though you might be physically a slave. If you're called and you're free and you're not a slave, then you're Christ's servant. Uh, in any case, you're still a slave, right? He says, you are bought with a price, be not you the servants of men. So just like you could buy a slave on the market, a human slave, Christ bought us with the price of his life, therefore we have become slaves of Christ. So slavery isn't a bad thing. <laughs> it's a good thing if we're slaves of Christ and God. Okay? Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. However you're called... Now, he's going to mention the context of this here in a few verses, of what he's, what he's talking about. He's not talking about, uh, let's say, from the time Christ was here on the earth until today. You know, we're supposed to go 2,000 years without anybody getting married? I don't think so. That's not what he's referring to. But he'll explain it as we go on. Uh, what, whatever state you're in, therein abide with God. Whether you're circumcised, whether you're a slave, and then he changes the subject here to another category. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the eternal. Uh, young unmarried people, or old unmarried people for that matter, virgins are those who have not been married. You're, if you're not married, you're supposed to be a virgin. You're not supposed to have had intercourse. So he says, what I'm saying here, I have not been commanded. Yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the eternal to be faithful. So he says, I've been appointed as an apostle. I've been trained three and a half years by Christ. He doesn't go through all the detail of it. But he had been made an apostle to uh, oversee all these churches. And God had shown him mercy. And therefore, he felt that the position he was in and the mercy he had achieved gave him the authority to do this. And in fact, he had said up there, this is the decision I've made in all the churches. And God backed it up by putting it in the Bible. So, uh, God backed what Paul was saying here in a very, very uh, adamant fashion. If you... 
if you raise what Paul wrote in this letter to these people to the level of Scripture, then it has God's endorsement. So it's not just Paul's opinion, as somebody might say. It is also God's opinion since God accepted it and canonized it. Okay? It's Scripture now. When he wrote it, it wasn't, but it is now. Uh, so now concerning unmarried or virgins, I have no commandment, but I'm going to tell you this. Verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Now, he was expecting, as were the other apostles, and they were not false prophets, they were expecting the end of the age to come very soon. And in fact, with all that was going on in the Roman Empire and uh, everything that was going on in the church, there was a great anticipation that it was almost over. And in fact, uh, the apostles were to die. So there was great stress and distress coming. Paul himself would be killed. So he's saying in this time, which he considered the end time, okay? Let's put it in modern phraseology. He's talking about the end time because he thought he was in it. And he knew that the events that would occur in the end time, having been taught by Christ, would be very, very distressing, very turbulent. So he, that's the reason he labels it the present distress or necessity, uh, the Greek says a little bit, uh, a little clearer, this present necessity. There's, as though they had none. So even if you are married, you should be reacting in some way as if you aren't even married, in some ways. And they that weep as though they wept not. Whatever your concerns are that are causing you to weep and to cry, whatever your troubles are, when you get down to the end time, be as though you weep not. In other words, set aside whatever problems you are dealing with that might cause you to weep and cry and be upset and frustrated. Set those aside. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. <clears throat> In other words, the things of this life, when you're at the end time, are immaterial. What is important is our relationship with God, the kingdom of God, and eternal life. Because everything on this earth is very, very temporary. And as old as most of us are getting, it's even more temporary. So he says, whatever your conditions, whatever your circumstance, set it aside. You know what that's saying? And they that buy as though they possess not. Material goods, material things, here at the very end, are unimportant. Truly, by comparison with what is about to be unleashed upon us. And they that use this world as not abusing it, the things of this world, you don't abuse them, but you still use them, for the fashion of this world passes away. Sir, 
So the entire society, the whole culture, the whole direction and life of man as we have known it and the world as we have known it is at the point of passing away. So he said, <laughs> do not emphasize marriage if you're married, getting married if you're not married, uh, buying and selling is unimportant. Uh, what else was up there? Rejoicing or weeping is unimportant. There's something that's far more important to all of us, and that is the kingdom of God. Because our judgment is now. And we do not have long left for that judgment to be complete, right? So he says, you're here, use the world around you, but realize it's going to pass away and there's nothing permanent there. But I would have you, verse 32, without carefulness. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the eternal, how he may please the eternal. Now, what he says there by saying, but I would have you without carefulness, means that we should not have to be careful about certain things. We shouldn't have to worry about them. We should be putting our focus on what is coming and God and not having to be so careful about everything on this earth. And he goes on to say then, He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the eternal, how he may please the eternal. He doesn't have a mate to care for, to think about, to worry about, to try to keep pleased and happy. He only has to be concerned in his relationship with God and keeping that happy. But he that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. So he says there's a conflict, there's a dichotomy there. Uh, if you're not married, it's easier to serve God and Him only. If you're married, then it's harder to serve God solely because you have a certain amount of attention that has to be paid to a, a, a mate to make the marriage work or make it continue to work. But he's saying, in this present distress, end of the age, our attention needs to be on God. Verse 34. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the eternal, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. We've had some single girls here on this property years ago that told me, I'm not worried about getting married. I'm uh, engaged to Christ. And I thought that was a beautiful attitude. They were putting their interest and their time and their energy into the relationship with God. Now, I don't intend to tell you anything about that, except that some of those same ones later on decided they wanted to move elsewhere and get married. That focus changed. And they may lose out on some things here at the end. I don't know. Uh, God may see them through it. They may be back here. I don't know. I'm not trying to make a judgment on that. I'm just saying <coughs> that there was a focus there that was really, really good and admirable 
and then that focus changed. Uh, so the unmarried woman cares for the things of the eternal. She may be holy in body and in spirit, but she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So her attention, her focus is divided then between Christ and her husband. That's more difficult because you're trying to do two things at once. Now, I understand, and you and we all do, and I went through it, I think, at Passover, that uh, our marriages should reflect uh, a type between Christ and his church. And if we're married, we should do everything we can to make that marriage like Christ and his bride. Now, on the other hand, we are suffering a certain conflict and a frustration, are we not? Because Christ has not come back and claimed his bride. Christ is also suffering a certain amount of conflict and, and uh, frustration because he is not with his bride. Now, he says he's going to come to her there in the Song of Songs, in the springtime it appears, when the turtle dove is singing and so on. But there's been an engagement period, if you will, from... Uh, well, he was married to ancient Israel and divorced her for disobedience and adultery. And then he made a new covenant with people at the beginning of his, at the end of his ministry and through the apostles. He began an engagement period with the church. Now, that engagement period has gone on almost 2,000 years, very, very close to 2,000 years now. Now, that's longer for us here on this earth than it is for him, because a thousand years is a day to him. But to us, a thousand years is a long, long time, since we only live about 70. And it's generation after generation that his engagement to his bride has gone on. But on the other hand, what is happening in this engagement period? He is getting acquainted with those who are prospective brides. He is putting them through a life and a calling and to see if they will respond and worship him and obey him and serve him with all their hearts. That's what he's doing. And he's working with each and every one of us now, just like he did these early converts in Paul's day, to see if we are worthy to be the bride of Christ. And out of all that he's called and all he's worked with, he's going to pick 144,000. And we're in the last generation of those that have been called, and we're the ones that will fill out those last positions of the 144,000. I don't know how many there are here at the end time, but it is this calling, and this one only, uh, whereby he will choose the rest. So, our judgment is here upon us. So, an engagement period is something that Christ himself uh, saw to and has done. And it's been a long one for us. And our, some of us have been in the church 40, 50, 60 years. And it's been a long engagement, hasn't it? And it's had its ups and downs and troubles. And he wants to love us, and he wants us to love him. And he's working on getting that relationship right. And when the end comes, there'll come some that don't have a wedding garment, and they'll be cast out. 
I mean, he may bring in some at the last minute that will respond better than some of those that have been around a long time that wouldn't respond. Those scriptures are pretty clear, too. I don't have time to go through them all, but let's understand that. <clears throat> okay. Uh, verse 35, this I speak for your own profit. He says, I'm giving you this understanding, I'm giving you this decision, and this advice for your own good, for your profit, for a good purpose. Not that I may cast a snare upon you. He says, I'm not doing this to hurt you. I'm not doing this to trap you. I'm telling you this because it's important for you and it's for your profit. But for that which is good or comely, and that you may attend upon the eternal without distraction. Here's the whole point of everything he says. So whether you're circumcised, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether you're married, whether you're unmarried, you need to be sure that you are attending upon the Lord without distraction. So however you may already be distracted, deal with it the best you can, but don't add any more distractions. But if any man think that he behaves himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and needs and need so require, let him do what he will. He sins not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, or can handle it, but has power over his own will, and has so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So he says, it's not a sin, it's not advisable, it's not good, but if you can't handle it, just flat out can't, and you can't control yourself, then go ahead. So he, then he that gives her in marriage does well, but he that gives her not in marriage does better. So it's better not to if you can handle it. Then he says, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the eternal. So she can't marry outside the faith or outside the church. Uh, if she is a widow or unmarried, only in the church. A lot of people kind of overlooked that part of 1 Corinthians 7 when they took liberty with the first part. Verse 40 then, But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. So he says, she can marry only in the church, not outside, but she's going to be happier if she abides unmarried, that is, according to his best judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. So it says, this isn't just Paul's opinion. He says, I believe the Spirit of God is leading me to say what I've said here. And then again, God included what Paul said here in Scripture. So that's pretty powerful stuff here at the end. Let's add another layer. Let's go to Joel 2. 
Now, we've read this and considered it before, and we've always wondered, well, when is this talking about? Are we there now? Uh, is it time to do what is said here in Joel 2? All right, let's just briefly show in Joel 1 that God is going to cause horrible things to occur that are going to cause famine and pestilence and disease and death. Just coming up to the day of the Lord. The events leading to it are going to be terrible. Uh, famine and pestilence and so on, as I said in chapter 2, or chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and the sound an alarm in my holy mountain. So this would be the church, Zion and Jerusalem, his holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the eternal comes, for it is near at hand. The things are going to get worse and worse, and there's going to be warfare as it goes down through this chapter, and how God will utter his voice before his army in 11. He's going to use the Assyrian to destroy Ephraim and Israel, along with their allies. And he says, as you see this coming, you see these events that are coming to happen just before the day of the Lord, here's what you do. Verse 12. Therefore, therefore meaning, what's coming, you consider it, and here's what you do. Therefore, also now, says the Eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. These are dire events that are coming on the earth that are going to destroy all but about 100 million people by the time it's over. That's what's coming up. It's on the radar already. It's at the very door. Rend your heart and not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Now, isn't this what Paul was saying? only in little different words. Turn to God with all your heart. Uh, he is your primary focus, and all, all of the things in this life are secondary to that. God is first in everything. We'll see that again here in a little bit in another scripture. Then he says, who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing. Maybe he will. Now, it's the same kind of wording in Zephaniah 2, where he says the financial crash will come, and then a military invasion will occur in chapter 2 right after that. But in chapter 2, he says, turn to God wholeheartedly, and maybe he will deliver you from this decree of destruction that has come. Same message there, just before Haggai. So, he reiterates, or emphasizes, emphasizes again in verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, that's to sound an alarm. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Now, I gave a sermon way back in Church of the Great God, I think it was an old, no, no, it would have been about 97, 98, I don't remember. And you've heard it several times. Uh, Acts 2, Joel, and the Church of God. And John Reitenbaugh called a fast then, based on this scripture. I think it was too early. Uh, I did last spring had a fast based on these scriptures. I think it was a little too early. The fast didn't hurt us. Turning to God doesn't hurt us. 
But was it the particular time that this is talking about just prior to when all these things start coming down? How do you know when that is? I think we'll get a little insight maybe before the sermon is over about that as well. But what does he say? When you see that this is about to occur, gather the people, uh, sanctify the congregation, set it apart, set it aside. Isn't that what Paul was telling us? When you see the present distress, the end is near, set aside all this physical stuff and be sure you put God first. That was Paul's message then. That was Joel's message here. And Joel's written to us. Gather the children, those that suck the breasts, get everybody in line, lined up, gathered together, knowing that trouble is coming and we need to be close, we need to be unified, not divided. We need to be all gathered together to serve God and turn to Him. Uh, let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. So here is a picture of people who are preparing to get married. Uh, they've gone in to make their final preparations. The bridegroom in his chamber. Christ is in his chamber in heaven right now. And the bride is down here trying to get herself prepared. So he says, this is a time of great distress. Didn't Paul say, stay as you are, don't do this, don't do that? Uh, and here, uh, Joel uses the exact same thing. You're planning a marriage, don't do it. Come out of your preparations. Stop your plan. Let the priests, the ministers of the eternal, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare your people, O eternal. Now, obviously, we have trouble turning to God with our whole heart, back in verse 12. We have trouble turning to him completely, as in Zephaniah 2. We'll see the same thing in Jeremiah here in a little bit. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul tells us that is our focus. Put God first, and set your physical things pretty much aside, because it's upon us. Okay? So when you see it upon us, these are his instructions. And if, the, if we do these things, he says, let the priests weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O eternal. That's to be my cry now, is that God spare his people. Give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. We know the Assyrian is coming, he's going to rule over Ephraim, he's going to destroy Ephraim, that it be not a people, Isaiah 7. And he will also do the same thing to us unless God spares us and is a wall of fire around us, according to Zechariah 2. We'll get it just like everybody else, unless God has mercy on us. And that's what he's saying here. Wherefore should they say among the people, where's their God? They were depending on God and the slaves just like the rest of us. What happened to God? We don't want to let that happen to us, do we? Now, if we do that, he says, then will the Eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. And he will answer and say to his people, I'm going to, in spite of all this famine and pestilence and everything that's coming, 
those who turn to him with all their hearts, set aside the physical, and accentuate the spiritual, them he will bless, so that you will not be approached reproached to the heathen, and he will remove from you the northern army, in verse 20, and drive them away from you. Says in Micah 5, those that come out and dwell in the wilderness where he will deliver them will go out and send the Assyrian packing, seven, even eight principal men, it says. <laughs> He's saying the same thing here. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice. Which land? Hill of Jerusalem and Zion. Nowhere else. That's clear in many scriptures. For the eternal will do great things. It says, don't anybody be afraid. The wilderness will spring and the tree will bear fruit. Blessings will return. Verse 23, be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God, for he's given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down uh, for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. And then there will be plenty for us. And then he's going to pour out his spirit after that, down in verse 28. Uh, the, the one may come Passover time, the other may come Pentecost time, it would appear to me. Peter certainly recognized Acts 2 as being a Pentecost time, uh, at least that part of Acts 2. Not the first part, but the part about uh, what happened on Pentecost in Acts 2. So here we have two witnesses that we are to set aside physical considerations and remain as we are and turn to God with our whole heart. That's the instruction of Paul, the instruction of Joel, and the instruction of Christ who canonized the Bible. Now, let's see if we can put some things together to corroborate when this shall be. Because there have been false starts on Joel too, uh, within the church many times, and even I have precipitated a couple of them, where we thought Joel too might be upon us. And I was a little early. <coughs> so what about that? Let's address it straightforward. We're addressing First Corinthians 7 and Joel 2 straightforward. All right, let's address straightforward uh, where we may be in all this, because that's important. Uh, how many false starts of Joel 2 do you want to have? We've had some, and throughout the church. Uh, there, there are other organizations of church people that have looked at this and seen the end almost upon us and have done this very thing. So, what is he talking about? I think that's important for us to consider. Don't you? I don't like to fast. If we're going to have this kind of a reaction, I want it to be at the right time, not at the wrong time. Been there, done that. Paul thought it was coming out of him right then. And he was wrong. It wasn't. He died and it went on, and finally John was his last apostle standing. So they went false prophets. They were trying to understand, and Christ did not reveal that part to them. He just simply didn't. He let them go on thinking so that they would work hard and overcome and grow, but it was really right then. And we've had false starts in worldwide going way back, and some have said, well, forget it. He was a false prophet. No, he wasn't. He was just like Paul and Peter and James. 
God didn't give him the complete timing. But he did give him understanding of what we need to do, up to a point. And now we're understanding those points even greater. You haven't heard 1 Corinthians 7 preached the way I just did in the history of the Church of God in the end time. You haven't heard Joel preached in the way that I just did in the end time. To take these specifics and deal with them, okay? Let's go from here. I'll, I'll put a few scriptures together. Uh, Jeremiah 29, first of all. And here, in verse 10, uh, For thus says the Eternal, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you in causing you to return to this place. Now, Daniel read that, and in Daniel 9, in verse 1, it says that he came to understand this in the first year of Darius. Now, the seventy years had finished, uh, Babylon had been destroyed, Belshazzar killed, and Darius, or Cyrus, uh, took over the kingdom. Esther and, and uh, what's-his-name son, Cyrus, who was half Israelite, or half Jew. But at that time, Paul read Jeremiah and said, Oh, this is talking about now at the end of the 70 years. We've been over that. But here at the end of 70 years, he says, I'll cause you to return to this place. That's Zion and Jerusalem, where he was. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Our only end that can be expected right now is destruction, as we just read in Joel, uh, when all these things come down, unless God relents and forgives us and protects us. So our expected end is just like all the people around us. That's all we can expect unless we do something. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Now, isn't that the message of Paul and the message of Joel and the message of Zephaniah and now the message of Jeremiah? And I will be found of you, says the Eternal, and I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations from the places where I have driven you and I will bring you again to the place where I caused you to be carried away captive. That was Jerusalem and Judah and Zion. So he says, after the 70 is done, this is going to happen when you turn to me with all your heart. Now we'll see that it did not happen the day after Babylon was destroyed. It was during the first year of Cyrus or Darius that Daniel even understood that. Uh, and it was in the second year of Darius, as we'll see, uh, when Haggai made his proclamation in August of, of uh, or the sixth month of the, of the second year of Darius. So, not immediately. And we've gone over before. It appears that the 430 years, Ezekiel laid on his side, has to have started at Roanoke and lasted until 
July of 17. There's no other period of time that you can put that to in the history of modern Israel, and it's an end-time prophecy. There's no other 430 years to consider. That's the earliest time, and they weren't even truly certain that Roanoke survived. But it apparently did, and God counted it, I think, from then until 17, when 430 was accomplished. And we don't have 20 years left to consider the pilgrims. We don't have that. Uh, it's too late for that. Now, the 70 years, I feel, started in 1947 when Herbert Armstrong said, let's build houses, church houses, build our own houses. It's going to be a long time. And 70 years later, from the time that he established a college to begin to train a ministry to establish those church houses, the 70 years ended then in uh, 2017, 6 September, from the time college first started in 1947. So the 4.30 in July, the, the 70, maybe in August, September, somewhere right in there, <coughs> would have been the end of those. But as I've noted before, God doesn't say it will happen the next day. And there in Ezekiel 5, 6, and 7, it does say that it is come, it has come, it is near, it is close, it has come, and it won't be echoing through the ages and through the years again, but it's upon us, okay? So, let's continue with these thoughts. Look at some more scriptures. I think we're going to see some astounding things. Uh, I've already mentioned Daniel 9, so I won't go there, where he said, I understood in the first year, sometime after Babylon was defeated. Uh, Haggai 1, I've referred to as well. Uh, well, well, we've been over it so many times, where it says that in the first day of the sixth month came this message to Haggai. This coming year, uh, that would be, I believe it's August 31st, I think, as I checked the calendar, end of August, uh, in the fall, in other words, or end of summer and beginning of fall, was when that will occur this year, at least. Let's see what impact there might be. Let's go to Ezra 1. Ezra 1. We've been here before, but there's some things here that I think we'll, we'll find of interest. So he says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So he's saying here that what Jeremiah wrote was now being fulfilled. He says, After 70 years, which we just read, I will begin to regather you, and I will start intervening when you turn to me with your whole heart. So there has to be a period of time in there from the time the 70 years ends that these other things can commence. So he makes the proclamation here in the first year of Cyrus, a proclamation of the king saying that God had charged him to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to build a temple. Now, he probably had been told this by Daniel, because Daniel had read Jeremiah. And when Daniel read Jeremiah, he understood that after 70 years, the temple was to be built, and that these events were to occur, 
And Daniel was still there after Belshazzar was killed and Babylon taken captive, still serving the new king of Persia. So he read Jeremiah, and I think he scurried over and told the king, here's what Jeremiah says has to happen. And it's after, it's after Babylon's destroyed, and it's on you to make this happen. So Cyrus said, wow, that's amazing. Not only am I important among the Gentiles, but I'm also important to God. <laughs> you know, he jumped right on that. And if this was indeed the Cyrus of, uh, of Esther, then he already understood about God. So he was getting the best of both worlds here. The Gentiles are accepting my rule, and so is God for me to do a specific work. So, he asked for volunteers and people to come and build a temple. So, it's my job to order this, uh, but I'm not going to go do it. So, who will? And then people began to gather. I don't want to get too much into that story because I'm, I'm work, working on some timing things here. Uh, let's see then. This was in the first year of Cyrus, which was probably, uh, I'm sure, was, uh, was Esther's son. Now, they called for the temple to be built here. And as you go through in the first part of Ezra, the people came and they worked. And they were building the temple. They'd gotten started. And then enemies appeared. And you find over in chapter 4, uh, Verse 23, that they had gotten an order and the Jews were caused to cease by power or force and power from building the temple. It says, then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. There was a cessation. Now, if you do the genealogy, which I think we did years and years ago, probably in 96. Uh, the scholars of the world estimate the fall of Babylon it's from 539, possibly 538 B.C. And 23 years later, or no, from the time they started with a cessation of 17 years, they then started the work again, in chapter 5 here, then the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews that were in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem in the name of the eternal God, and then they rose up and started building the temple. And then you see that it was completed uh, approximately four years later. Might have been three and a half, might have been four uh, in March or the month of Adar, four years later. So they had started, then they had a delay of 17 years, then in four years or less, approximately four, they finished it in the month of Adar. Do the math. 23 years. From the time the order was given, a little work done, no work done for 17 years, 
approximately four years later, you have 23 years. From the time Cyrus said this needs to happen, and it's my job to announce it, 23 years later it was finished. Done. Now, see, that's in five, oh, let's see, Ezra 615 is where I was, so you have the reference, uh, 615, yeah. This house was finished on the third day of the month, Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So there had been a change in administration there from Cyrus to Darius, uh, and then it was finished in the sixth year, having started back up again in the second year of Darius. Four years later, it was done in March. And they kept the feast, so they did a feast of dedication in verse uh, 16. Wouldn't have been the time that we do the feast of dedication now. Uh, this was in Adar that they did it. But they still dedicated it at that time. And then they kept the Passover. So that's the timing there. Now, let's move forward to today. The best information and knowledge we have in, re in terms of when Christ may return, it seems the most likely time is fall of 26, based upon Christ proclaiming a jubilee uh, there in Luke 4. And... 50-year periods from then until 2026 makes 2,000 years. So if he declared that year the year of dedication, 2,000 years is later is 2026. And God called Herbert Armstrong uh, in the Jubilee year that fits that, as I recall. I'm saying this from memory. He called in, the, in uh, 1900 years later, he always said, yeah, from 2680 to 1926 was 1900 years later, so it was Jubilee-based. Now, Christ returns at the end of 2000 years from the time he called Herbert Armstrong in 26 until 2026 is another 100 years, so it also then would be time uh, for the millennium to begin the next year in 2027 from atonement on. So, it was 26-27 that Herbert Armstrong was called. 26-27 uh, when Christ was beginning his ministry. And 2026 and 2027, the preparations for Christ to return and the bride and then the millennium start a year later. So it's the same, same time frame. All right, now, Let's look at our own history a little bit. Mine, in that sense, particularly the years as well, since you're associated and are part of this. It was in Beaver Dam, Arizona, where I owned the subdivision at the time in 1994, that the first dream came, or vision, whatever it was, as I was waking up, that God wanted me to prepare a place for his people to come and it was near there. Beaver Dam, Arizona is pretty near here. Uh, that was in, to the best of my recollection, in 1994. 
with that king. Now, I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know where he meant. Uh, I searched around about in the general area and wondered, but nothing happened. So it kind of got put on the back burner, not knowing what to do. But then, uh, something interesting happened this week that made me think of all this and do a little more research. Uh, John Reitenbaugh came out to visit Zion in, on December 25th of 1996. John Reed and I met him. We all got met together and went to Zion on Christmas in 96. Now, over the years, that's crossed my mind once in a while, and I thought, why did he come to Zion on Christmas? What is Christmas? Satan's Day, right? Not Christ's birthday, it's Satan's Day. It's Christmas. It's all about Satan. Satan Claus, and so on. You, you know, all the story about that being Satan's Day. Well, why would God's representatives come to Zion on Satan's Day? Kind of odd, in a way. Well, I did not plan it this way, but... After reading 1 Corinthians 7 there, uh, there were some conflicts in my mind in preparing for a marriage, <laughs> if you will. And I read this, and I'm thinking, hmm, how does this apply? What does this mean? So I decided to go out first part of this week and fast. Well, I had guests coming in here to the B&B later in the week, so... I thought, if I'm going to go, I better go now. Well, it turned out I went out and was there on Christmas Day <laughs> to fast. Same area, area of Zion and Jerusalem. Same place that the first dream had come about preparing a place near there. Uh, and on the same day that John had come and looked at Zion. Now, is that coincidence? Now, what have we got working here? When John visited Zion, he made a statement after seeing it. He said, this may indeed be the place, but it is not the time. You know what? He was right about the place, and he was also right that it was not the time. Now, he went there on Satan's Day, December 25th. Some knowledge came my way this year on Christmas Day, the 25th of December. That the events that are going to begin to occur are going to do what? They're going to signal the end of Satan's domination of the earth. When God begins his marvelous, mysterious, and strange work here at the end, up till now it's only been preparation, and I'll show you there's been a delay. <clears throat> but when he starts it, that is the beginning of what will cause Satan's world to come apart and cause him to be bound at the end of the end-time work of God 
for the tribulation ends and Christ returns and Satan is taken into the wilderness. So is it only coincidence that it was Satan's day that John visited Zion, which is where God will begin his work to destroy Satan? And why does Satan stand at the right hand of the end-time leaders? Because he knows that when that work begins, it signals his end. So he's trying to destroy it from the very beginning. He goes before God every day, accusing you and me who are part of this. And I think God reveals some things about timing of when his work will begin that signals the end of Satan's reign, and he did it on Christmas Day, Satan's Day. Zion would be the place that Satan's end would begin. <clears throat> but it would be delayed for a while. It wasn't the time, John said. And then it will come, and when it comes, it signals the end of Satan's rule. All right, let's see how that fits some things. These may be all coincidences, and I could be wrong, but let's consider. Now, in January of 96, and I do not know, I didn't note at the time, the date, but I believe it was in the second week, undoubtedly. Uh, I, the best I've been able to pin it down is somewhere between maybe the 10th and the 13th was when the message and the understanding came of Haggai and Zechariah. Second week of January, 1996. Okay? Now, if we come to January 19th, I mean January of 2019, that's exactly 23 years later. January of 19. Maybe the second week. 23 years later. Mark that. Now, we can go to Jeremiah, I think it's 25. I've read this to you fairly recently. <clears throat> Where Jeremiah tells them that this 70 years is going to end... And if you go to chapter 23 and verse 20, it says, In the latter days you shall understand it perfectly. So it's the latter days that Jeremiah is talking about here in this section of Scripture. Is it 25 I wanted here? Uh, you'll serve Babylon for 20 years, you'll serve in Babylon 20 years. Verse 12, after 70 years I will punish Babylon. I wrote this down here somewhere. Where did I put it? Uh, is it 25 I wanted? I think I started in 3. Yeah, 3. <clears throat> From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, that that is the 23rd year that the word of the Eternal has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. Now, the message 
started going out on the Internet via telephone and tape after January of 96. I think the first sermon was February of 96, 23 years ago. And the church has not hearkened to that message. And the Eternal has sent you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not hearkened or inclined your ear to hear. Now, what has my message been? It has been the message of all the prophets. We've gone through them all. And nobody's hearkened. They said, turn you again, the elder man, one from his evil way and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the eternal is given to you and to your fathers forever and ever. I told them they need to come back to Jerusalem and Zion in the wilderness. Michael 4, you heard it, you came. But most didn't. Didn't hear. I'm a kook out in the desert. They know about us. They know about me. I have a reputation, a really bad one, and worldwide it goes back 45, 50 years. They know about it. But they're doing nothing about it. Okay? It says, don't go after other gods. What does Paul say? Cast aside everything but God. Uh, <clears throat> then he says that he will cause destruction. Because for 23 years they listened and didn't hear. Then destruction would come. He says, verse 9, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north against this land and all the nations round about and will utterly destroy them. Moreover, verse 10, I will take from them the voice of laughter, mirth, joking, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. This is sober, serious business. This isn't to be looked at lightly that everything is going to suddenly get really, truly serious because the destruction is coming. And isn't that what Paul said? When you see the end there, forget about everything else. Concentrate on God. And the bride and the bridegroom is mentioned in Joel 2, as mentioned in First Corinthians 7. You're not going to hear that anymore. It's not a time for marriage. It's going to get too dire and too dangerous but consider that. And that's at the end of 23 years, he says. I've been saying this for 23 years. I've been telling you what the prophets say. You've been listening to the other prophets. And you haven't done a thing about it. Now destruction is coming. Kind of scary. After 70 years, these things will be accomplished when I will punish Babylon. And we know that America represents Babylon and that it will be punished and go down into utter desolation, that the only ones that will survive are those whom God protects by his wall of fire. They're the only ones. The rest of the church is going into tribulation and will die there, hopefully repenting before they die, so they can be part of the bride. But only the 10% remnant is going to be saved through it. Scary business. After the end of 70 years, and after Jeremiah had preached it for 23 years, now, I just recounted for you the time this message came to me, as of this January and February, it will have been 23 years. 23 years since it came in the second week of January. Uh, 23 years that it's been proclaimed, 
from the first uh, Sabbath of February when I first gave my first sermon about it. That will have been proclaimed for 23 years. Does that tie in with Jeremiah and the 23 and the destruction coming? We'll soon know. But it sure is strange coincidence, isn't it? Now let's consider something else. Uh, from the second year of Darius, Haggai says that they were to gather to build a temple. Now, in Ezra, there had been a 17-year delay, and then they were able to finish it, and it took them three and a half, four years, somewhere right in that neighborhood. Uh, where did I write this down here? Uh, so I can remember what I what I put together a little earlier. Um, all right, we begin sermons showing that the temple needed to be built. And then we moved out here in 01 to start, we thought. I moved over, rented a house in December of 01. I started bringing stuff over at the feast in 01 uh, and put it in storage, and then we had the feast. And then some people began to come right after that. Well, Add 17 years of that, and you come to 2018, 2019, 2018, 17 years later. Here we are, 17 years later, but there's been a delay. Now, if you also take uh, 2002, December 7th of 2002, and add 17 years to that, 2002 and December 7th, was when I put the down payment on this land. We thought, now we can build a temple. You know what? 17 years later, there's been a delay. It wasn't time. This is the place. It isn't the time. Was that a prophetic statement or what? Now, after 17 years, is it time for it to start again? Just like it did in Ezra. And will it take three and a half or four years for it to finish? Now, you can go back. We've got the chart here that we made before. Starting with the tribulation ending in fall of 2026, 20, count back three and a half years of tribulation, 1260 days, and you have spring of 23 with a tribulation beginning. Temple defiled around Passover time. Spring of 23. Now, we are in the fall of 18 right now, about to go into 2019. Well, if in the fall of 2019, this next year, what if this lines up with Haggai, where it says the sixth month, the first day, a call was made, it's time to do this, and the people will say, no, it isn't time. Now, they've been saying that all along since I've proclaimed that this was to be, but then there was a delay of 17 years. Now, what if August 31st of 2019 is when that call goes out 
Now is the time. Let's get started. Well, Haggai then shows the seventh month, the 21st day, and how they'd gone to work and so on, and the ninth and the 24th when they would truly be blessed in what they were doing. What if it starts, the temple building, beginning with a proclamation in August 31st of 2019? Three and a half to four years later, it would be finished by the time the tribulation starts, if it starts in the uh, spring of, uh, of, of 23. That would give us three and a half, approximately the four years to get it done. That's what it took them back in Ezra's day, three and a half, four years. It doesn't give the exact date, so we don't know for sure. But close to four years. Now, I thought up till now that perhaps we'd start the temple soon and we'd get it built and then build Jerusalem. But maybe not, because Jerusalem has to be built in 70 weeks. From the time the order is given to do it, it has to be finished. And then the man of sin, at the end of that time, comes in and defiles it. Well, what if we start the temple after a 17-year delay? From 2002, when we bought the land, till 19, 17-year delay, and then start it. And it takes up until Jerusalem is finished to complete it. We might start the temple back here first, and it may take three and a half, four years. And somewhere in that timeline then, the order to also build Jerusalem comes, which is 70 weeks. So the temple and Jerusalem are finished at approximately the same time, and then the temple is defiled and Jerusalem taken over at that time. The delay years fit, the 22 years of preaching fits, it all comes together before it's time for all this to begin. Jeremiah said, after 23 years, of destruction is coming. That scares me a little bit. It truly does. Did I cover, I think I covered most of it. Now, in the light of all this, which I simply cannot deny, what was bothering me two or three weeks ago when I first started contemplating going through First Corinthians 7, I usually read ahead a bit, I started reading that, and Gloria and I had gotten engaged, and we decided for January 12th was the day. It may have been January 12th. It easily have been that this message first came about Agai. And suddenly this comes clear that it isn't time to get married. And not only Paul says it at the end time, Joel says it when you see this destruction about to occur. Uh, Jeremiah says it, the sound of the bride and the groom is not going to be heard. Things are going to get very dire. Now, does that mean there will be no marriages between now and the time Christ returns? No, I don't think so. Because he says, you've had a time, a bad time. Now, you're going to be destroyed unless you turn to me and put me first. And then he says, I'm going to bless you if you will do that. Now, there might be a time, because if we do it now, and the gathering begins, say, this spring, because Isaiah 52 says that 
the witnesses will see eye to eye when God turns it around, speaking of signs and wonders of Zechariah 3, that uh, Zerubbabel will wake up and won't be blind and deaf anymore, and the signs and wonders of God will cause him to respond. Chapter 53 shows the Passover. Chapter 54 shows the gathering. Expand your tips. It appears to be in the springtime, just like this chart and the numbers I gave you say. And it appears that it will be this coming spring, based on all of this. Maybe it's all coincidence. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But it sure is a lot of coincidence, even down to the Christmas days and everything. In the exact times, in the exact years, the 17 and the 23 and so on. Now, that doesn't mean that once God does turn and bless and the gathering comes, there might be several years in there while the temple and then Jerusalem were being built when people could marry in the safety and perfection of God as opposed to the events leading up to the time when they will have to be supernaturally protected or die. And if we don't turn to him with our whole heart, when we see these dire things coming, then we'll not be protected. So what Paul was saying, and Joel was saying, and Jeremiah was saying, and all the other prophets, is turn to God, put him first, put aside other plans, even circumcision, <laughs> you know, and seek God. And when you do, Jeremiah says, you will find him, and he will allow himself to be found. And then some of our physical plans could happen. So in the light of all this, it's been a pretty tumultuous week. Uh, putting some of these things together and understanding that it's probably talking about the time frame we're in. And we're seeing the stock market getting very, very shaky and volatile. We're seeing World War III being proclaimed between Russia and America. We see a border wall not being built. The U.S. government, for crying out loud, is shut down right now. There are terrible times coming, and it appears that they're going to be this spring, this first quarter and off, by quite a few people who are looking at it, not from the standpoint of God, but now when we put these years together, it looks like it's here to me. Now, having considered all this, uh, Gloria and I have decided to uh, put all plans on hold. We're not going to go through with it now. We feel that these scriptures indicate that this is not the time. And how can I preach it and not do it? You know, it's staring me right in the face in First Corinthians 7. It's staring me right in the face in Joel 2 and in Jeremiah. So it's been a very traumatic week for, she, for her and for me. And... It's not been easy, because we had a lot of plans. And he says, forget your plans, seek me. And Paul said, doesn't matter whether you're married or whether you're not married, stay like you are and seek me. So even though this has been very, very difficult, and there's been some tears this week, uh, I think that it has to be done that way. If I'm going to preach it to you, 
then I got to live it. And so everything's on hold. Uh, we still like each other. I'm not finding a way here to get out of this. Uh, our rings are almost made. We'll be this week. And we'll probably wear them around and we'll still be engaged. But everything's on hold unless and until God shows it is now time and you can go ahead. And who knows what's going to happen in the meantime. I certainly don't. But I know tumultuous times are coming. And I think that we had to take this step in order to get in line with these scriptures and in line with the timing that appears has been shown this very week from Christmas Day on, and some of it just this morning. As I studied through these scriptures and saw how the 23 and the 17 and everything all just come together, and the history of this work fits them all to a T perfectly. And if this other chart about Herbert Armstrong and the 50 years and the 70 years between when he was called and when this message came, 1926 to 1996, and all those 70s that were in there, it all fits perfectly. Is it all coincidence? I'll leave you to judge that. I don't know. But it sure is compelling to me. And it's compelling enough that I feel my attention has to be on God, not on marriage, and not on fiancé. Uh, yeah, we'll still speak. <laughs> and we'll still, still spend some time together, I'm sure. But we've got, we got to kind of feel our way through this. What is God doing? When is he doing it? And, uh, again, it's not been easy, but I feel that it was necessary in the light of all these scriptures. So, whatever I see in this book, i got to do. Whatever you see in this book, you better do. And that's what I think I see in this book right now. So, uh, enough said. Let's think about it.